All right. Adam, I'm going to have you and I'm going to have the listeners close your eyes, if you will, unless you're driving. Don't close your eyes if you're driving. Pull over first. You have been on a boat for the last 10 hours. And you're finally at a point. It's dark outside. You hear it coming over the loudspeaker. All hands start to lower landing vessels. And as you see, you know, you're awake, you're out on the deck. You see them start to lower your landing craft down into the water. You're 10 miles out from the French coast. And you're wearing all of your stuff, all your equipment that you're going to take with you. You have to climb over the side of this ship you're on and climb down a cargo net into this wooden, I don't want to say rickety, but this wooden flat bottom boat with you and 36 other guys. What's my underwear situation like? Uh, it might be dry still at this point, depending on how the climb down goes. If you slip and fall, it might be a little wet. You get into this and you have to wait then bobbing up and down out there, hoping this thing doesn't float or doesn't sink for all these other guys on the boat to get down with you. And all of a sudden motor cranks up and you guys start heading out into the toward France with the sun just starting to light the sky. And as you do that, you're the loudest thing you've ever heard flying over your head as the naval artillery opens up behind you to start bombing the coast. While you're in this boat, you look up and you see more planes in the sky than you can count flying over you, heading toward the coast as well. And as you watch the coast, you see tiny dots of explosions erupting everywhere. You can hear the noise. The boat just keeps going forward, splashing water into the boat. You're wet at this point, seasick. And as you get closer and closer, by the way, this trip, how long do you think this trip takes you? Probably 45, 50 minutes. Try about two and a half to three hours. And you're just heading slowly. And the sound gets louder and louder as you start to hear gunfire, explosions. And then eventually someone tells you 30 seconds. Boat comes to a stop. Door goes down. And all you see is machine gun fire coming at you. Things exploding and you're supposed to just run right toward it. Your buddies that are in your unit with you that you've known are getting cut down all around you. Explosions going off. Body parts. Yeah, I mean, it, the the probably the thing that I get in that image the most, and it just popped up when you said that, but, like, there's no retreat. No. You're backed up against that water. Yeah, like, and, and, and you're hoping, too, when that ramp goes down that, you know, you could still be out waist-deep water. You yeah. jump off, you trip, you fall down, you're having to pick yourself up from being drowned by all your equipment. You're holding your rifle above your head as you're coming in to make sure nothing else gets wet. Do you just have to have the mentality that, like, at that point it's up to fate? Like, I don't, I'm not a big believer, like, in fate or anything, but I think you almost have to put your mind to be like, either I'm going to make it out of this thing or I'm not. And regardless of what I do or where I hide or anything like that, it's not going to change that outcome. I think that the leaders, the the guys that ran the plan, I think that they um, 
like they knew this. I don't think the guys that were out on the boats had quite like come to that reality yet. The guys that were going to be storming the beaches. Yeah, I, I don't think that there was anything like just to lay that explanation out like you just did. Nobody's mind could ever go there. No, you could never prepare for that. No, so you just have to know. You have to have faith in whatever you believe in that's going to get you through that or put absolute trust in the person that is going to be telling you what to do yeah and just trust that whatever they're going to tell you to do if you do it without question in that moment that it's somehow going to keep you alive you have to trust every chain of command and every chain of logistics that have gotten you there that they're going to get you there a in the right place b at the right time and c with some sort of an advantage well i mean this was the reality of essentially everybody during those first few waves of the d-day invasions of normandy and last week we covered the essentially the build-up for operation overlord and today today's the money shot basically today's the b-day almost for us it's the b-day of d-day that's no it'll it'll be tomorrow so it's this, yeah. So we're dropping this the day before the anniversary of D Day. So hopefully you're searching for this and you find this episode. But yeah, <laughs> this is D Day. about the term D-Day. So D-Day... No the, idea what it means. The D means day. It's and, day-day? Okay. D-Day is any day that was designated, essentially, for, like, a military operation or invasion. The reason that D-Day is now synonymous with this is because this is the largest one. It's the one that everybody knows it as. So technically, during the invasion of Sicily, there was a D-Day there. It was just the day that the operation oh, no happened. Oh, no shit. Yes. It just happened to be D-Day for that operation. I don't know if it means technically like designated day, but that's this is now synonymous with D-Day. Huh. But it's just a military term. I technically, didn't know it's that. considered the Battle of Normandy. So this is the fruition essentially of years of planning to try to establish a foothold to beat the Nazis back out of Western Europe and essentially put a put a knife right through it. And, you know, overall, you know, what these, what these men went through, I, it's not surprising that even guys that just went through this, like, maybe like, I'm thinking like, this would never be something that you would want to talk about. No. The things that you would Uh -uh. see. And so, which I'm not saying that's a shame or anything like that, but I think that because it was such an event that was so scarring for so many people that that's why not a lot of people actually know in a detailed way, like what the sacrifice was like, how terrifying and how much courage it took to do this because those people probably just don't want to talk about it. You know, the biggest relation that people can probably make, like we said back in the previous episode is the opening scene from, from saving private Ryan. They did screenings of that. The first screening they did, the premiere was actually at the, um, at Normandy at Omaha beach and they'd invited all of the uh, survivors from Omaha Beach to no. that. Just, I know. So they told them what they would be seeing and everything like that. They did say that a few, a few of them had to kind of step out, everything. But they also 
talked to a lot of them and the majority of them were were happy and they said that it's the closest they've seen of a portrayal of it but it still wasn't close and and, and how could it be yeah I, but i mean the 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 carnage essentially is just you know you can only show so much in a movie but i mean in real life like that's that's what the reality that that beach all those beaches were mined people were getting blown up body parts being shot off just bodies in the surf and everything the water turning red all that stuff was was real uh, and so much of it on the tail end just thinking about that and thinking like i would say probably the troops that come home from Afghanistan could almost more relate to World War Two troops than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Because other than that, like, we're fighting against other countries or other, like, militant groups. I think Whereas, maybe, too, they could have a relation or they could kind of relate to Vietnam for the aspect of, I think, the Afghanistan war, smaller pockets, not really yeah. a standing army, more of, like, that kind of stuff. But I, but, I think it's just, it's... When it comes to combat, I think all of them kind of share a universal language that not that no one else understands. Uh, but it's it's shit like here we're talking about mines are everywhere. Oh yeah, and you know during World War Two, like a bridge crossing or anything like that in enemy territory is probably gonna have mines or something mm-hmm. on it. Just like over in Afghanistan, when you're fighting against the Taliban, kind of a more closer to like a primal fighting style mm-hmm. where they're creating IEDs. Like, seeing a tank get blown up or in, like, a mine blast back then, it's probably fairly similar to seeing an IED blow up on the side of a road for, yeah. for any Afghani soldier. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. So, essentially what kicks this off is the um, night of June 5th, The all of the ships leave their 20 departure points, loaded up with the troops that are going to essentially be loaded into these Higgins boats and then assault the beaches they load them up onto their boats and they meet right off the Isle of Wight at a designated place called Piccadilly Circus. I mentioned that last week. What a wild name. Well, they just named it after Piccadilly Circus in London. It's the like their version of Times Square. Piccadilly Circus? You don't know what Piccadilly Circus is? No. So like it's basically London's version of Times Square. They've got like the Coca-Cola advertisement and like screens. It's uh, kind of like it, I think there's a big roundabout or something. That's the worst name that I've ever You've never heard, heard of Piccadilly something. Circus. No. Okay, Times well, Square that's why sounds cool. Piccadilly Circus sounds not cool. I see clowns. That's bad teeth. Yeah. <laughs> so they all start making their way essentially from that uh, rendezvous spot. At that point, the ships kind of go off into their own columns, and they're actually preceded by minesweepers. So huge group of minesweepers go ahead of the main invasion fleet to make sure that they're not going to run into any mines and to clear any of those out of the way. On the night of June 5th, a little bit later, about 2,200 bombers, that's 2,200 bombers, leave, and their main focus is to hit targets along the beach and then inland of Normandy, to start softening up targets. And so there was a little bit of cloud cover and... Most of them, when you're flying in a plane like that at a couple hundred miles an hour, a couple hundred miles an hour, and you're trying to hit something like on a beach, half a second or a second, two seconds, it's too long. Yeah. So the bombing you're going for too fast. Yeah. So the bombing at like Utah and Omaha wasn't very successful. 
the bombing that took place kind of more on the eastern side of the invasion over toward like uh, Sword and Juno. And what was the easternmost one? Oh, no, that was uh, Sword. Yeah, and then Those, Gold was like right in the middle. Gold wasn't was it? right in the middle. Those were a little bit more successful. So these planes all take off. Also, just after midnight is when the 1,200 planes that were carrying the three airborne divisions take off from England. Now, they're not taking off. There's 25,000 airborne paratroopers that are dropping. So they're not all just taking off from one place. So essentially, you have 1,200 planes from around Britain, where these guys are stationed, loading up onto the planes with all of the equipment that they're going to be jumping with to survive for the next three or four or five days. Into these, I think they're uh, C-47s. They call them Dakotas, Skytrains. The, the darkest part of night, and depending on how many airfields they're launching them from, if it's 12 airfields, what, that's 100 planes that they have I to get I think it was even more than 12. It was probably somewhere between, like, because also they had to, like, house the guys there for a while. So, I mean, you, you really wanted to spread yeah. that out. It was probably a quite a f- bit more than 12. I know that they had to take off, and then they actually had to, some of the planes had to go into, like, a holding pattern until the groups all That's formed up. so much coordination. Yeah, and especially when the planes are maybe just communicating via radio with each other, and there's not, like, a proximity, op- you know, anything like that to keep you, I mean, you're flying in decently close formation to do that. In the dead of night, in probably the darkest part of night. I think they took off right as it was getting dark. They were able to load up and everything and then take oh, off. Oh, you said 2,200 hours, right? No, I said just after midnight. Oh, That's okay. when they started heading over okay. the channel. So these they fly over essentially the invasion fleet, and the planes essentially, the British ones kind of are heading more to the east, American ones to the west, and... When they get over the coast, about a half an hour before these planes took off, there was a, I don't know how many planes there were in, but there was something in the neighborhood. They were called Pathfinders. I think there was something like 300 of these guys. Their job was to basically jump out of these planes. They would fly in low and fast, jump out of these planes, and their job was to set up these beacons that would then guide in the other planes bringing the 25,000 paratroopers to their landing zones. So these guys were actually the first people in occupied Britain, or in, sorry, in occupied France. Landing most of the time, just a few of the guys, enemy territory to set up these beacons to make sure that these planes could find their way in. Wildly important that these guys survive. Yes. And despite these guys setting up these beacons or being able to set up as many as they can, eventually when it does come time for, you know, the um, airborne troopers, they start flying over France to their drop zone. As soon as they start flying over, any aircraft fire and flak just starts lighting up the sky. Because you can hear these planes coming. You know, there's 12, not 1,200 of them in a one area, but if they're splitting off and sending an equal distance, you know, that's 600 planes flying over. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's going to draw attention. And you're sure. having to fly over. It's not like you're just able to fly over the sea, drop them right on the coast, and then bail out. You're getting them miles inland. And so as you bring them over and you're experiencing this anti-aircraft fire, some of the planes are trying to kind of avoid it, gaining altitude. Um, they have to be at a specific speed and altitude for these guys to be able to jump. I think they're jumping from about 600 feet. When we were talking about it last night, the way that I kind of see it was as they were jumping out of the planes, mm-hmm. there was something that was still connected to the plane. That a static, they call it a static line. So um, 
I, if, if anyone has ever watched Band of Brothers, go back and watch it. It's the first or second episode where they actually jump. If you've never seen the series, I highly recommend it. It's, it's great. But so in this plane, you would have, I think, uh, 16 guys per plane. And in, you know, you'd be sitting on each side facing each other on benches. Mm-hmm. In the middle along the top, there was a steel cable. And when you stood up and you were getting ready to jump, you had a hook that hooked on and locked onto this cable. That hook was attached to your chute. So as you jumped out of the plane, it pulled your chute for you. So as you cleared the propellers and everything. Yeah, the bag on it had like a 12 foot piece of rope. And so you would get out past the tail and then it would, the bag would come off and the chute would come out. So you had these 16 guys and as you're getting closer, you're under fire. The plane's jostling back and forth. Some planes were getting hit. Some of the planes didn't even have navigators, man. Some of them were just the pilots that were responsible for trying to find these points. And what they had to do with this, um, like, um, homing beacon situation, if every plane, it would basically send out a signal and then wait for a response. And then Mm -hmm. as the response got shorter, that's how you would be able to tell. Oh, okay. If every plane was using theirs, it would jam it up to where it wasn't giving you a proper reading. So the only planes that could have this on were like the lead planes in these formations. So you'd have to be able to keep an eye on them to know when to drop and be watching these lead planes and the planes ahead of you while trying to dodge enemy fire and keep your plane steady and everything. So once you finally do get to what you determine is the drop zone, the pilot or getting near it, the pilot would turn on a light in the back of the plane. There would be a red light near the door. They would all stand up. Everyone would hook onto the line. They would do an equipment check where the guy behind you would make sure your stuff was secure. Oh, good. And they would call it down. That's... 15 okay, 14 okay, 13 okay. And they'd tap each other on the shoulder. 12 okay, 11 okay. And finally, one okay. And then usually their commanding officer was the guy standing by the door. Getting them all out of the plane was usually one of the last ones to go. So they're st- holding there while that light's red. As soon as the pilot detects that they're above the landing zone or wants to get the fuck out of there. Yeah. He flips another switch, the light turns to green and those guys are out. And I was I was watching some footage, um, like recovered footage from actual jumps and everything. They are literally on each other's asses so hard trying to get out of this plane. Like one guy jumps and it almost looks like the other guy is like reaching out to have him pull him out of the plane too. And I was like, why the fuck are they doing that? Like I could understand wanting to get out of a plane, not wanting yeah. it to go down. Yeah. I realized that when I when you see him coming out, those are all the guys that are within your like squad or your unit that you'd be familiar with. Even a split second, that distance between you guys jumping out of that plane and where you're going to land could be a hundred yards. And then to try to find each other again and hope there's not a German position between you two, you would want to be as close to your unit as possible. So I could see why these guys are literally just like almost like on each other's asses trying to hug each other coming out of this thing. Human centipede out of the thing. Yeah. And Throughout this whole thing, only about 10% of the paratroopers hit their landing zones. That's not survival or anything like that, but only Just 10% hit their designated Where they were zones. supposed to be, yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, they were scattered, you know, from the American side. They were dropped prim- primarily behind Utah Beach, and they were kind of scattered all over the peninsula. And then on the other side, um, they were still kind of scattered on the British side over at Sword Beach. But I think they may have hit... a a few more spots a little bit more accurately. Um, yeah. Guys that are hitting the water though. You have guys that are flooded like landing fields, on bases, landing, yeah, flooded fields. landing in these flooded fields, landing on top of German positions. There was one guy in the town of fuck. It might've been can. And 
he his parachute snagged on the top of a steeple on a building. He ended up getting captured. Then he escaped. He still has, they put up a statue or an effigy of a paratrooper hanging from the steeple in this town that's still there. Uh-uh. Yes. That's awesome. Because, I mean, he was there to help liberate France. So you have these guys jumping out and essentially going to complete missions before the landing has even taken place. Some of them are, you know, their missions are to essentially um, capture towns that are like crossroads towns for traveling in to try to connect the beaches together. Mm -hmm. Others are um, assigned to take out um, gun emplacements that can reach down and hit the beach. So there's all these different missions that all of these scattered paratroopers have to find each other. Most of them, because they're so separated, end up just creating mismatched units out of... Because although they're jumping and they're in a wide swath, if you had like the... I'm going to use the one off of Band of Brothers. So you have Easy Company, which is part of like seven companies, A through F, I think like that. So you have all of those companies basically all trying to land within a swath or flying their planes all kind of together. Mm -hmm. So you would kind of probably know guys from other companies and everything. So people would essentially band together to try to then go accomplish these missions. Or try to meet at, at assembly areas to then go off and try to accomplish these missions. I mean, they had stuff they had to do even before the invasion was set to kick off. You're not the guys I need, but you're the guys I have. Exactly. And at that point, man, it's dark. You're in the middle of occupied France. You see someone who meets, you know, is wearing the same uniform <laughs> as you, and you're like, thank fucking Christ. They had a, um, they had a way of uh, signaling to each other. Code words. So if, like, you saw someone... And they saw you like the, it was flash. And then the other person was supposed to say thunder and you would know it was friendly. <laughs> like if you're hiding in the bushes, they also had these tiny little things that were like little noisemakers that almost made just like a popping sound, like a, like a dog clicker. Yep. And they would have those. So if they didn't want to have to make any noise or anything like that, they could click it once and it almost sounded like a bug. Uh-huh. And then you would hear a click from the other side and then you could be like flash and you would wait for the response uh-huh. of thunder. So that's how they could also kind of, find each other or make sure that they weren't just stumbling into like a German patrol. Yeah. I mean, I figure at that point, if you were to say anything and it sounded English, you'd be like, cool, you're good. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you're probably so fucking scared shitless yeah. and panicked at that point anyway. Had you said something and you heard a, a gun blast, that was probably German. Yeah. Well, at the same time that these guys are getting towed in to jump in um, from the paratroopers, some of these planes are towing gliders. And these aren't like, honey, hey, take a picture. I'm hang gliding. Oh, I'm dead. No, these are like, Basically, planes just without engines. I don't. I don't get it. I, okay, so explain. No, I, I, I get it. I just I don't understand how we use this much of this kind of technology because there was a lot of gliders, weren't there? Yeah, I mean there were quite a few. So the whole point about using a glider is, you know, like we were talking about, some of the missions of these guys were to establish, you know, take over villages or establish defensive positions to push away counterattacks that yeah. were going to come in. You can't fight against tanks if you're just jumping with a rifle or even just like a bazooka. So these gliders that they had, they were pretty decent size. Some of them, or a lot of them that they were using, bigger than the actual transport planes that the paratroopers were going in. Those could hold 16. I think the gliders could hold something like, I want to say 20 plus, or you could sub out some of the guys and you could actually bring in like a Jeep or a field gun. Yep, And so... They were also quiet. 
and they could bring in artillery. And if these things were to go ahead and land, the front of them had a hinge on it, just like you see some huge transport planes. And then they could just drive the Jeep or artillery and pull it out and then unload the soldiers. Well, and they said part of that idea, too, was they strapped the whatever the payload was. So if it was like a Jeep or something Mm -hmm. like that, they strapped it down. But then they also strapped it to the wire. Yeah. And so if the attachments broke as it landed, it would pull on the wire and it would pull open that nose. That's right. So the payload wouldn't come crashing through and blow up like the pilots of the glider. It would just slide right on out of the machine. That would be crazy if that happened. You're landing yeah. already. You're already having to crash land in <laughs> uh-huh. a field, essentially. And then you feel, literally, you start to go vertical to point up, and the Jeep just shoots out from underneath you. But you're so glad the Jeep didn't oh, just thank hit God. you. But, so, one of the missions these guys, these guys had two missions that I got to talk about these glider guys, both British on the British side. One of them was, um, and for some reason, the British airborne part of it had an operational name. The American side didn't. We didn't need one. Yeah. So the British called it, called it operation Tonga. And one of the areas that they needed to try to capture was between the beach and this, um, like village or town called, uh, can film festival. Mm-hmm. Film festival. No, no, no. It's a C A E N or C E A N oh, or something. Okay. It's not con like that one. So these guys, they have it's a three glider squad, and their job is to capture this bridge called the Pegasus Bridge. The pilots are so fucking good that they land these three planes within forty seven yards of the bridge. The troops are able to jump out and completely catch any of the Germans guarding this thing, completely off guard. Some of them were still ducking their heads and covering their ears from the naval bombardment. They took them completely by surprise. It was like the perfect execution you could do for this. That's sort of the other thing about gliders, is they're quieter. Well, yeah. You don't have engines or anything like that, so your presence is coming in still probably pretty loud, just thinking how big they were. Mm, I I don't know. I mean, you would probably hear like a for like the wind catching the wings but i mean these things were primarily made of almost all wood and then just had like canvas stretched over the wings i mean i'm sure you would hear something here's the thing though is like it's it's dark man like you got a full moon and everything but you have to know and of course you've if this is your job you've literally studied every reconnaissance photo every Mm -hmm. bit of information you know exactly what's next to the bridge so you have an idea of where you're going to try to land but to find it, execute that, land in a field, not crash, have your men be able to jump out and fight and capture that within literally minutes of you landing. And and to capture that bridge was was incredible. Well, yeah, if you hit that close, 47 yards isn't enough distance between you and really anything to be able to get your wits about you, get your gun, and start trying to defend yourself. Like, that's a, exactly. a very quick come up. Yeah. So... There was that one, and then they also had a uh, mission to try to complete before the landings, uh, a separate British unit, but to take out what was called the Merville gun battery. Did you look into this at all? Uh-uh. So, oh, the, was this the one where they climbed up the cliffs? No, that's okay. that's during the invasion. That's Point Duhok. Oh, that's right. That wasn't gliders. That was... So the Merville gun battery was about eight miles away from Sword Beach, but it had like four uh, 100-millimeter howitzer cannons that could fire far enough and were sighted in for Sword Beach. Was this the one where they said that it could hit two different beaches? 
No, no, no. That was Point Du Hoc. Oh, okay. Because it could hit okay. Utah and Omaha. Okay. So they had four of these, these four huge like gun encasements that were surrounded and they were six feet thick mm-hmm. concrete, still reinforced. They had a bunch of AA guns, uh, 15 machine guns positions covering the entire area. They then had, I think, barbed wire that was stacked up about eight feet tall across a field and then a minefield inside that barbed wire. Uh, shit. They had some shit and it was fortified. It was real fucking defended. So there was um, a group of, essentially they were commandos that came in and um, part of them dropped in and part of them were a glider unit, paratroopers and then glider. There were supposed to be 600 men that were supposed to assemble that this was their mission. They were waiting for guys to assemble. They had assembled about 150 men, and it came to the point where it was like, if we don't fucking take this, they're just going to be able to start opening fire as soon as the invasion begins. we got to try to do it now. Can't remember the commander's name. should have written it down. But he takes 150 men, no heavy weapons, no equipment to try to take out like the defenses or anything like that, and he's able to... I believe he uses a, a distraction. One of the gliders comes in and actually, I think it might have landed like within that like complex, mm-hmm. not like close to, but like out by the barbed wire. Yeah. And so that starts drawing fire from the Germans. They had the night before they landed, some of the guys had snuck up and created holes in the barbed wire for them to get through under the cover of darkness and everything. So they had ways to get through and had also cleared a few paths through the minefield. So he attacks this position with uh, about 150 men, they lose half of them, but they actually are able to capture this. That's a big get because if you're coming up that way and that thing is active, it's mowing down a lot of people. Oh yeah, those things would take out anything that could land on that beach. If it hit it, there's you know tanks, landing craft, anything like that. Concentration of troops, they're dead. Yeah. So, I mean the the. Only having 150 men and, and just having that, like, we're supposed to have 600. We have a quarter of that, but, like, this is our duty. This is our mission. Like, there's there's no no to this. Yeah. We have to do this. Like, if we don't do this, how many other people are going to die if we don't put our lives on the line to do this? We just... You did whatever you had to do at that point. Like there, it's sort of like there was a going back at that point, and I'm sure there probably were some people that were shaken up that didn't show up to the party because they weren't prepared to do that. Mm-hmm. But eventually, when push comes to shove, you still have to make whatever happened happen. And it sounds like they were damn lucky that that glider flew in there and took on that fire. Yeah, drew some of it. Yeah. And so this is all happening essentially before, you know, before the boots are even on the beach. It, a, a time before, because they also said that there was so much smoke by the time they were trying to provide the cover once they hit the beach and they were going over in the air. There was so much smoke in the air from just the war that they were having a tough time. It was because of the artillery that the Navy was firing, catching yeah. a bunch of grass fields on fire oh, on, is the, that what on the back side of the beach. Yep. And that's what... And that ended up working against them because then they couldn't see anything. Yeah, your drops from airplanes were obscured by all the smoke. So, you know, the the boats that are next to their, or the boats that are approaching their designated beaches, again, about 10 miles offshore, they, this is when they load up the, um, the Higgins boats with, you know, 36 guys that are 
driving right into the jaws of death. That's actually the name of the picture, the famous picture where it's from inside the Higgins boat on Omaha and you're mm-hmm. looking out and it's just smoky and you can see the guys moving. That's called Into the Jaws of Death. Is that an actual picture that it's was It's an taken? actual picture. Yeah, it's probably one of the most famous pictures from, from <laughs> D-Day. You'd, you'd know it if you saw it. It's, uh, it's, no, I yeah. know what you're talking about. I just didn't realize it was an actual picture. Yeah, like it's an it actual was. picture. So, yeah, you're loaded up 10 miles out. takes you two and a half, three hours. And the way I figured that out is because they did an interview with the Higgins boat driver, and he said round trip took six to seven hours to drop guys off, pull back out, and go get more guys and bring them back. So your legs are already shot before you get to the beach. You're st- you're standing the whole time. Yeah, you're just trying it, to keep your balance. In that's the what seat. I'm saying. You're you're firing all those muscles to keep standing on those things, mm-hmm. and then you have to get off and fight an entire war. Yeah. And so I mean, it it differed from from beach to beach. Um, I think the first people that landed were actually at Utah. And crazy thing about Utah is there is the oldest person that storms the beaches as part of the campaign. He's a 56 year old. Um, I, he's not a general, he's a captain or a major. You're talking about junior? junior. Yeah. And I don't even think he was supposed to go when they were getting ready to land or getting ready to get on the boats. I don't know if he asked someone to be able to go or his commanding officer, but they said that what he provided when they did land was, was invaluable. Um, he, he had to walk with a cane and he would carry the pistol, his pistol in his other hand yeah. and everything. But they said when the boats were coming in to land on Utah because of the wind and the chop, it blew them off course by a mile. They landed a mile off from there, but it was still within an area of Utah Beach. So when they landed, they weren't taking a lot of fire. They <sighs> were taking a little bit of artillery fire and everything. Yeah. But they, he said they got off the beach and they're like, I don't recognize anything where we're at. There's supposed to be a building and a windmill. That's mm-hmm. what... Our map was designating us. So he goes and he he takes a look and like crawls up on a sand bank and looks and he can see like the windmill like down the beach off in the distance. <laughs> and his two options at that point, you know, rallying his men, he's like, well, I can either take us down the beach. He's like, we're not getting fired on here. We're not. He's like, the war starts here, it looks like. I, it's, it sounds like being blown off course is like... 50% good, 50% bad. Yeah. Like it it seems like it should be something that was a bigger deal, but it's almost like it was just kind of like yeah, like it was negligible to what was about to happen really. Mm-hmm. Like Well, and the other thing too is because they had they moved and gone back further down the beach, they're going to be walking. It's not like they can like back back the boat up and take yeah, us further. It's yep. not like no, that. There, there's no reverse in this situation. But then everyone following you as part of this landing wave is going to be blown off course into this same spot. So yeah. why don't you consolidate all your, all your power and then you can move out because you weren't again being really fired upon at that point. That's one of the things that another guy pointed out. It's like, they're not even really firing. They don't know. Like if they're going to give us a weak spot, we're going to go and take this. Yeah. You're not taking fire from both sides. You're just taking fire from directly in front of you. Like it's not coming from the right or the left. Depending and even on then I think out. he was really lightly defended as far as even in placements in front of them. It just might've been a stretch where they, they didn't expect them to land. Kind of like you were talking about, I think it blew them more off course to the more west than yeah. east. So Utah Beach and Omaha Beach, they're separated essentially by the this river that comes through. But you know, like when a river meets like the ocean, it has like a big estuary where it fans out. Yeah, it's out. a mouth. 
the mouth of it. So it's a wider gap for them to, to be separated by. So kind of in between this gap, though, there's a about a hundred foot high cliff that almost like juts out into the, the water. It almost looks like the top of a Hershey kiss, the way it kind of goes mm-hmm. out like that. And this was called Point du Hawk. And this is, I think, what you were talking about. And the Germans had set up a like a huge artillery position with a bunch of artillery guns that could fire down and have direct visibility on both Utah mm-hmm. and Omaha Beach. Yeah. It could also look directly out, and if any boats got too close, it could fire on boats coming in. So Point du Hawk gets assigned to these um, army rangers, and there's 200 of them. And their job is to essentially scale these 100-foot cliffs straight up to assault the enemy position and take out the that artillery area. And through a combination of grappling hooks, fire ladders that they <laughs> took from like the London and like uh, British fire departments and everything. Like that, yeah, that's, they said that they took the ladders from the fire departments back home. Mm-hmm. Like that's how much we were piecemealing this together. They said they had developed some type of like device that could fire a grappling hook, like a grappling gun. A Batman. Yeah, a Batman gun. That would be able to get them like up a little higher and then be able to keep climbing. <laughs> the whole time they're they're scaling this cliff, they're having grenades and yeah, like, dude. fire fired down on. Them. <laughs> you're just like you just are Have, climbing. Did you look up? at any pictures of this? Uh uh-uh. uh It's fucking I, crazy. I don't know if I even want to see the pictures because they just have it in my mind of like you're climbing up the side of this sheer face almost, and you just look over and you hear a grenade like clink against the side of the mountain right next to you, but mm-hmm. it doesn't blow up, and you're like, okay. Well, that's that was good that that missed me, and then you hear it blow up, and then you hear somebody down firing a little bit lower. Yeah, than you, yeah. You hear it firing from a people firing down on you from above you. Like the thought that this was even possible is so mind blowing. They they lucked out, I think, because there were still people there manning that position. They end up getting a lot of their guys to the top. So And they get their guys to the top, and they're able to actually secure the position, but they end up finding out that all of the artillery pieces and guns there, they were actually moved. Yeah. And it's because the Allied bombing was so heavy, and that position was pretty exposed. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking... Being out jutting out point, in the, yeah. yeah. Um, that they didn't want the, the weapons to get taken out. So they moved them, I think they said, like 600 yards back away and hid them in an orchard. These guys end up finding them, these rangers, yeah. and they end up destroying them anyway. What happens, though, is these guys were supposed to be able to signal to um, their reinforcements another like group of rangers if they needed reinforcements coming up. So these guys do end up coming under fire from the Germans and falling back to essentially the, not the cliffs, but the position on top of the cliffs. Because mm-hmm. it was already, it was built up to house the uh um, gun batteries. Yeah. So it was a defensible position and ended up being under attack, I think from the Germans for a couple days before they were relieved. Wow. And, and lost quite a few guys, but they ended up holding the position, but that group of Rangers that was going to come in and reinforce them, they were supposed to be able to send them some type of signal that they needed reinforcements. They couldn't send it. And so they ended up just going, I think to Utah beach to help out or going to Omaha beach to help out reinforcements left. Yeah. Shit. And never, and never made it. But you know, to, to assign that like that, that's your job. Like the guy comes up to him and he's like, so what's our mission? He's like, you see these cliffs right here with all of these guns on it. And he's like, yeah. He's like, so like, are we going to like, is the Navy going to bomb those or like the airplanes? He's like, well, yeah, they're going to do that, but then we're going to need you guys to take it out too. Okay. So, 
are we paired jumping in? Or are we going to go in on the beaches and then come around the back? Do we have uh, Sherpas? Are there goats? What are we doing? Uh, well, we just thought you guys can maybe just climb the cliffs. <laughs> you know, from the beach, you guys just go straight up. Seems like the, the quickest route to it. Are there guys up there? Oh, yeah, there's, there's Germans up there. Do they have guns? Most mm-hmm. likely. So they're going to be shooting at us, right? Definitely. And they're going to be tossing grenades down on yes. top of you. But, I mean, these guys made it up there and ended up taking the position. Like, it's it's so many just, like, different, not, not stories because, like, that makes you think they're false, but it's so many different accounts and events that happened during this one invasion of all these, like, singular acts of heroics and things like that. Guys getting stuck on the beach at... You know, Utah was relatively light as far as um, people getting killed. It was actually the the least deadly of all of the beaches getting stormed. Out of the 23,000 that landed on that beach on D-Day, only 170 were killed or wounded. That's an incredible success rate. fucking incredible. Especially when you're right next to Omaha. So you move over. Yeah, let's move over to Omaha. (laughs) Omaha is probably the most famous of the beaches. I'm not just saying that because we are Americans. I'm saying that because this is where the most people died. So 34,000 American troops. um, One of the army groups was the first, the Big Red One. And they were uh, seasoned like battle-hardened from uh, like the Mediterranean theater. So they end up storming these beaches and... They were supposed to have tanks that were supposed to come in. The whole point of how they wanted this invasion to go and how the British kind of worked it is let's get the armor onto the beach as quickly as possible because it can take more damage and it can take out positions. Behind the armor, we'll land our troops. Right behind them, they can follow the armor in and also have that kind of support. So at Omaha... The Brits had a solid plan. They did. And at Omaha the first people that made it onto the shore were essentially the, the infantry and man, when they hit the beach, it, the accounts are, are like the, that beginning scene in saving private Ryan where the gate drops and the Nazis just have them zeroed in on machine gun fire. And the first six or seven guys just go down. Um, I remember one guy's account that it, it actually happened. He was talking about how he was the first one out of the boat, the next and the, Next guy to get out of the boat behind him was the seventh guy. Everyone else had gotten shot. Shit. And the biggest thing, I, I want to get to the whole, I want to kind of map out like the beach and everything to kind of try to paint a picture about how insane this was and just the bravery that it took to actually storm up these beaches. But I do have to pee real quick. Okay. All right, while we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business, you can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod, that's historically high pod, and our Twitter is historically high, that's historically hi. All right, and back to our show. All right, let's talk beaches. Usually you go beach, nice, relaxing, great view. Um, the beaches of France, they were a little bit unique in that the difference between like low tide and high tide, like you're saying, that's something you really don't think about, low tide, no. high tide. Uh-uh. So the difference between low tide and high tide is when it's down at low tide, it extends the beachfront about 300 to 400 yards. Now, this wasn't exact for all of the beaches that they were storming. 
in some of the situations, I think more on the British side, either at Sword, Juno, or Gold, some there was like even villages like right up almost to the beach, to where it was very very close. Which one had the casino? One oh, of them had a casino that the Nazis occupied. Yeah, I can't remember where that was. That in Cannes, Saint Maricles. I can't remember where that was. Look that up and find out. So, like we were kind of talking about in the the first um, the previous episode last week, they chose to do it kind of in between low tide and high tide when the tide was coming in to help the landing craft, but to also spot obstacles. So even then, before you even get to what they call the shingle or the um, seawall, yeah, it was about 150, 150 yards across open sand with no cover with these guys just sighted up on you. Just explosives, mines, machine gun fire, and you had to cross this while you were probably already soaking wet with all that weight on you trying to get up to where you could actually get some cover after 150 yards at this little seawall. And you would have to probably just like lay down and hunker down and try to gather some troops up to that point. Monte Cassino. Monte Cassino's in Italy. Uh, the Battle of Monte Cassino reached crescendo in May. Oh, yeah. No, that's wrong. I don't know how to find <laughs> it. That's a tough Google. So, so after right up where high tide comes is what's called the shingle. You know when you're at the beach and there's almost that strip of like larger rocks? It's like a almost like a shelf. Yes, exactly. So that's where you would hit what was called the shingle. So right where you after you hit the high tide mark. And then at that point that's when you would see like the little bit of like a seawall. And then on the other side of that or before that, they would have just a shit ton of barbed wire. So there's obstacles stopping you from wherever you're trying to go. Omaha, you have no tanks on the beach, you have no way of getting through this, so they would have to bring up these things they call them bangalores. They're, Badass. So did you see they're the huge long stick grenades yep. basically, and they would use them to clear obstacles. You would then have at this point during this first wave, you had combat engineers come in, and their job was basically they didn't have guns or anything like that. They weren't there to fight. They were there to essentially wire all of the obstacles that they could with explosives to try to clear a path for any of the armor that actually did happen to make it onto the beach, of which at Omaha, there was like none. And you're just praying that somebody's going to lay cover fire for you. Yes. Or you're praying that because maybe they don't see that you don't have a gun, they're not going to try to shoot at you. But guess what? You're trying to destroy these obstacles. They're shooting at anything and everything. Yeah. Then after you happen to get past the seawall and the barbed wire, if you make it through, then there's about another 100 to 200 yards called the shelf. And that's another flat area that then leads up to the cliffs that they're firing at you from on top of. So all in all, a total distance, even if you're at mid-tide, of at least like 350 yards. So three and a half football fields from when you get off the... And you're walking straight into enemy fire. I... I don't know if this sounds super smart, but at that distance, there probably weren't a lot of rifles that were traveling that far being shot, but like the machine guns and shit mm-hmm. would have enough force to carry a pretty accurate bullet from that far away. I would assume so. And again, this isn't the designated you know distance on all the beaches. Some were yeah. much closer to the cliffs. Some were, but, I don't think they really got any further. I think there was something at Utah where they said that it was about 300-yard stretch of sand leading up to where the defensive positions were. But even then, you're literally just charging straight into it. Do you serpentine? Do you run straight to save <laughs> yeah. time? Like, do you go down on your belly every now and then to try to throw them off? Like, what the fuck do you do? 
you're trying not to stay grouped together because that's more of an opportunity. So you're trying to stay off by yourself, but stay close. Like that's, that's what I'm saying. Like there's gotta be some type of lizard brain where you kick into just like, I need to get from here to here. And like, I'm in shock and I just need to operate. It's just fight or flight. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of those guys that had, they been interviewed that survived afterwards. And they're like, so what was your plan out there? It's like, I don't know. I, I kind of blacked out for a second to get where I needed to be. Like try to get up where I could see where they maybe couldn't hit me from. uh, Yeah. And then after that, try to gather myself and get to the next spot where they couldn't shoot at me from. I had so much adrenaline and endorphins flowing. All I knew was that I got from one place to another place. The big thing with Omaha is it had the strongest defenses. It also had the most seasoned troops. There was a, a company or a, a unit of troops there that were that come from the Eastern Front that were a little uh, more seasoned, and so they knew what they were doing. So they were also fighting more, you know, more knowledgeable soldiers. But Omaha ends up having the, the worst casualties. So out of the 34,000 troops that stormed Omaha, and again, this isn't all at one time. This is having to come in waves. So this is the total throughout the day. The fighting for Omaha to actually take the beach and push inland just a little bit was literally an all-day affair. By the end of the day, I don't think they had, like, completely, like, taken over the beach yet. They were still, like, pockets of fighting. Well, and it's exactly like you said. They were coming in waves, so anybody that landed first had to either make a move up Mm -hmm. or you were mowed down. Exactly. Like, you couldn't just sit there and wait because Mm -hmm. there were just waves of other troops coming. And the longer that you were waiting... Someone up in that German bunker is telling the artillery from the last shot you fired, hey, shift that over uh-huh. 30, 30 yards to the yep. left if you can and dial it back 15 feet and you're going to hit a big group of guys trying to take cover. So you just got to scatter. You got to hit, turn into a cockroach and just start trying to move up. And so with Omaha, it had some pretty high cliffs on it. And Omaha Beach is kind of a crescent moon shaped and everything. And it's on both sides of it. It's, it's kind of hemmed in by cliffs. It's a beautiful beach. It's an insanely beautiful beach. Not that day. No, no, not the, that the day. The way you but look at it now, yeah, it's it's very beautiful. But I, it's still like just looking at pictures of it. No matter how pretty it looks, every picture you just know like there's something in the pit of your stomach. Some bad happened. Or you there. can still see some of the concrete pillboxes and like fortifications yeah. and stuff. Like, like looking at the beach, and you're just like Jesus. You, you know that something very bad took place. I wonder. Do you? If you took a metal detector out there, like, just for funsies on Omaha Beach, mm-hmm. would it just never stop going off because there's shit buried underneath I'm sure the a sand? lot of people have actually done that, but I'm sure you would still, after some searching, hit some stuff. You would have to. Yeah. Especially, like, going out, like, a low tide. Uh-huh. Where some of that stuff is covered by water, underwater obstacles. Fucking bullets that fell off of guys that got shot in the water and drowned and all that kind of stuff. Like, how many guys, like, a lot of these, when they were bringing in the Higgins boats... If you would hit one of these, you know, they're not all getting up to the beach and dropping these doors down. They're hitting obstacles. Some of them are hitting the mines. Yeah. Guys are having to bail over the sides and then try to swim. That's the other thing is think about how many times they would have had to have gone through after the war and swept that thing for mines. Mm -hmm. Because even if you leave one out there and you let people go out there and something happens, like they had to have combed through that thing with a fine tooth comb (laughs) to to just get every little bit of dangerous shit that was going on. Is it like off uh, Spaceballs where it's actually a comb? (laughs) Yeah. And they're dragging it through the desert. But that's just to think about that that place has been turned into what it is now with just the absolute. You know, horror that it saw is 
tough to understand. Well, and <clears throat> the fighting was just so crazy there that there were certain like draws and gullies that would be natural progressions to go off the beach, lower ground that would uh-huh, help you get up yeah. to higher ground. Well, of course, those were all completely, totally defended as much as possible to not even went off the beach. So eventually they said that throughout the day it came down to just like, um, you know, commanding officers, um, guys that were just in charge of like other soldiers putting together little groups and being like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to climb up on this like, you know, hillside and we're going to try to scramble out of here and try to come around from the back because the thing about the defenses and kind of going back to what we were talking about with like Rommel's preparations, think of it as like the Atlantic wall and these defenses being like a crust. And once you punch through it, there wasn't a lot of strength behind. It was a lot of sporadic little like machine gun nests, Mm -hmm. little fortifications, but it wasn't strong all the way through. Usually how the, um, how the Nazis had been so successful with like being attacked or counterattacked is they would like to have what they call strength in depth. They want, they wanted to have a, a solid bench basically. So you would have your soldiers up front and you would keep your armor kind of behind a few, you know, a little bit behind. But if that first line broke, you had your armor right behind to push up. And I think that's kind of what Rommel was after in this situation, but he didn't have the manpower tanks to do it. No, because Mustache didn't let him have any more of them. So you have, you know, these pockets of uh, Americans that are kind of putting guys together and scrambling up this. And if they can get behind these defenses, they start making headway and start taking out kind of these like little um, fortifications one at a time. You can breathe again. Yeah. Is basically what it comes down Mm -hmm. to. You can get to a point where you don't have to be just looking for gunfire all the time. And you see a group of guys going up there and it inspires more guys to move up and, you know, you're, you're finally making some headway. So that, you know, that beach definitely had the, the toughest time. Again, a lot of these, um, the other beaches were taken within a few hours, if not, you know, half the day, but still by the end of the first day, the, the fighting on Omaha beach wasn't completely done. It was so bad that at a certain point after, I think, the first or second wave that they actually paused sending anyone else in. And the guy that was in charge of the American portion, Omar Bradley, he was actually tempted to just cancel the Omaha Beach landing. I don't know what that would have done as far as trying to fold the other guys around the back of Omaha Beach from the other ones or anything. But it's good that they didn't. It would have potentially bought the Germans more time to have reinforcements brought up. Yeah, well, that was part of the reason why the first bombings that happened before they even landed on the beach were so important because it choked off any supplies to that Atlantic wall. Well, the whole thing is, so what kind of the argument was to keep the tanks back is, and this is what Rommel's point was, why you shouldn't keep the tanks back. He's like, if you guys need to then move the tanks up to try to counterattack or try to push these guys back in the ocean, mm-hmm. they have air superiority. They're just going to launch their fighter bombers and they'll just take out your columns of tanks on the road before they even get here. I need these things up close to where I can actually use them and not have to worry about them getting destroyed on the road. Yeah. But kind of the drawback on that is when there was also some bomber missions that were taking place all the way up to the point of you know, the invasion happening a lot of the bombs weren't successful because the bomber pilots during that invasion of Sicily, there was instances where the bombers dropped their bombs too soon and actually hit some of their landing craft and the troops. 
So like these pilots, because of that happening, not the same pilots. Yeah. But they knew about that. They were kind of hyper aware of that and would hold off for an extra few seconds. Well, an extra few seconds when you're flying in a plane, like we were talking about, is hundreds of yards, if not thousands. And so you're not you're not hitting. I don't know why this never occurred to them, and maybe it did, and they just didn't mention it. Why would you bomb going directly over the beach the short way instead of lining yourself up and all your bombers to go Past. over the beach the long way to where <laughs> then you're opening, you can drop, like, you're not having, because if you're dropping it the long way, like you're flying in this situation north to south, the beach stretches east to west. Uh-huh. You have to pinpoint a very specific pot part to hit just one target. And then when you're dropping your bombs, they don't all drop at the same time. You know, it's a, it's a line of them. So I don't know why you wouldn't fly along the beach in the same direction that the beach goes and all your bombers were dropping that way. My guess would be that they would probably be over land so much longer that you're they more would, susceptible to all the guns that are right there on the people coast preparing you for you to fly over coming north to south. That's yeah, that's so they true. could kind of lead you and pick you off. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's you're definitely lessening your chances of hitting things. It's just such a like, I don't know. It's seems like we should have had better technology than to not hit the landing parties if they were going that far inland. Like, yeah. But then again, you do talk about the smoke that was in the air and everything else that was diverting and making things that were tougher to see, which I i mean, I really can't judge or say I'm critical of any of this shit because I couldn't have come up with any of it. But mm-hmm. there's just so many different things and it comes down to sheer numbers. It just the absolute kind of fight that the Germans had because we ended up killing a lot of French folks ourselves, right? Well... There there were more French casualties, I think, throughout Operation Overlord than there were German casualties. And a lot of that has to do with when, you know, towns like uh, Caen. They, they, we knew that that was a German stronghold, and so to soften it up, it got bombed. Yeah, but they were holding French people in the city. Yes. And, and it's so, unfortunate that it happened that way, but they also got all their stuff back. Yes. But, yeah, so situations like that, yeah, you're going to have the the French casualties, unfortunately. Um, But, yeah, so, I mean, the other other beaches did fare a little bit better, so I don't know if I mentioned it. So out of the 34,000 that um, stormed Omaha, uh, 2,400 casualties. Again, casualties either mean killed, wounded, or missing, just basically not able to be counted on to fight. Yeah. So we move on to Gold Beach, and on Gold... Juno and Sword, they actually um, fared better than on Omaha. Gold had 25,000 British invade it, only 400 casualties. So they did a great job and were able to push pretty far inland. Um, Juno was the second worst. And out of 21,400 troops that landed on Juno, they had 1,200 casualties. And then Sword at the very end, 29,000 British troops landed with um, 630 casualties. And I believe S.W.O.R.D. is where they landed the most tanks. And um, that's why they were able to lessen their casualties so much is because they had some armor there to take on the the armor on the the German side or the artillery. And then using those tanks, I think one of the missions for the soldiers, their, their big mission for the guys landing on the beach was to try to essentially 
turn it into one continuous controlled beachhead. So to pretty much shore up all the distance between mm-hmm. the beaches to where they controlled it. Off, yeah. They also wanted to make sure that they were connecting with the airborne troopers that dropped to, to make sure that they had, you know, secured the area. And that town, uh, can or con, that was one of their missions too, was to try to take that. And they weren't able to do it within this first or second day due to German resistance and like some tank formations that came in. But as far as at the end of the day for D-Day, um, yeah, the, the allies had established a pretty solid foothold. I think I want to say it was something in the neighborhood of the width of the, you know, 50 mile beachhead and then maybe about four miles inland, which I mean, ain't bad. no, that's not, I mean, if you go outside and you try to look four miles, you'd be like, okay, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big, you know, piece of area. But at the same time, in comparison to the country of France and having room to maneuver and yeah, everything nah, like that, n- not at all. So I, if I was a German, I probably would have rather taken my chances on Utah Beach or Omaha Beach because I feel like the British people probably had a little bit extra for the Germans after everything I would that they'd gone that. through. I would imagine that the Americans were pretty, just slightly less pissed off for the fact of saying like, you made us fucking come all the way across yeah. the ocean because you started this shit. Some of us have already had to fight you fuckers in like Italy uh-huh. and everything. We're in back Africa. for round two. Yes. And now we're having to come back because you guys won't go the fuck away. I think that's part of the, some of the stuff that I was kind of listening to was a lot of these guys that went over there. There were definitely a lot of first timers mm-hmm. and this was their first go around. But there was a lot of soldiers that had already seen action either in North Africa that didn't been moved or on a different front. But that's that's purposeful. You're going to send in veterans because they know yeah. essentially and they're used to that and they can operate as soldiers without that fear than sending in green recruits. It is, but you, I think you only have so much like ability to put up with that shit. Like there after is, you've um, seen so much. Have you heard of the Well of Courage? There was a, a guy in Parliament, I think, someone that knew Churchill, and he talked oh, about yeah. the well of courage and that every everybody has a well of courage. They're not – everyone's is deeper or shallow. When that well runs out, it's – you're done. Yeah. And they said that that is applicable of all men and all soldiers, and they had an understanding of that. And they're like, these people that are able to keep going and be able to perform, their well is just deeper, but that's not saying anything about them. It's just some like everyone has this well of courage and sometimes they just or they use too much of it through their actions. And when you run out, you run out and you're just not able to operate anymore. And hopefully, you know, I'm not exactly sure how the whole everyone was fucking traumatized, like from the fucking get go on this. I'm just wondering kind of what the procedure for someone like suffering, what would they call it? Shock or like shell shock or something like that? Shell shock. Shell shock what the what they would do for those people because again those people are as much a danger to you know their fellow soldiers uh-huh. as they are to themselves of, oh, yeah. of not being able to perform their tasks so i mean and with d-day being essentially the day that the invasion occurred taking a look at operation overlord as a whole you know that that took place and operation overlord is considered to take place for about a, a period of 3 months while they're establishing you know the their foothold in europe and by the end of August, more than 2 million Allied troops were in France. So they were bringing in people as quickly as fucking possible. With the Mulberry Harbors, I think they were able to bring in something like 6,000 tons of, yeah, 6,000 tons of supplies daily off of the operational Mulberry Harbor. It's a brilliant system that, um, 
that number, I don't remember if it was last episode or I said it earlier in this episode, but five days after D-Day, they had brought over 300,000 troops, 54,000 vehicles, and 104,000 tons of supplies. 54,000 vehicles. Just using those Mulberry Harbors. Yes. That's just a, a marvel. 54,000. Yeah. I just, I don't know if that includes planes and everything that they could have flown over into there, but. I, they, they didn't have airfields yet. Oh, they only yeah. had that. I mean, that would have been jeeps, tanks, troop transports, artillery pieces, anything and everything. But you know, part of oper and you know, part of Operation Overlord was also they had their eyes on Cherbourg, and so that was part of the operation that falls under Overlord. So you had um, troops that were landing in that actually cut off the Continent Peninsula, so it was twenty-two miles wide. So they landed at Utah, basically on the far east side of the peninsula, 22 miles over to the end of it on the west. They cut that off for any German reinforcements and then just basically made their way up to the peninsula. And eventually after the Navy, British Navy was bombarding it from the sea. Yeah. And they were, the soldiers were pushing in from land. Um, I want to say that the Germans did go ahead and surrender it, but not before they totally fucked up and like trashed the harbor. So they, so they completely do. mined it, des- destroyed as much stuff as they could to basically keep us from being able to use it. And it was, I think July 16th is when they were actually able to capture Cherbourg. And I think within, I want to say a month, maybe a month and a half, they had cleared out and repaired the harbor enough to start using it. And then shit was just coming straight from America right to Cherbourg. So they were able to bring in even, you know, they had a proper functional port that they were able to bring in even more supplies. I all, I mean, in the scope of time, it sounds like a long time and knowing the hours put into every one of those days, it was an eternity, but all in all, that's a pretty fast mission. Yeah. Yeah. Insanely fast. And looking at it, like I didn't, you don't realize the depth of it. You just understand the planning of the invasion itself. But everything that's planned, it's not, there's never a, hey, let's go ahead and, you know, get the invasion over with, establish the beachhead, and then figure (laughs) out how we're going to get stuff over Uh there. Everything was already, all the wheels were already in motion for everything to get over there. They knew that they wouldn't be able to get fuel over there, and they knew that providing tankers and everything wasn't really feasible because, again, the Mulberry Harbors, you would then just have to unload it onto trucks or everything. Did you ever hear the Pluto pipeline under the ocean? Yeah, it was a, it was above... Above ground, but it was below water. It just ran along the ocean floor, didn't it? Yep. So these trawlers that had these huge spools on the back of them basically stretched this three-inch diameter, and there were multiple ones. Uh, there was, I think they said they ended up using somewhere between, like, there ended up being, like, 20 of them over the course of this. <laughs> they stretched it from, I think, the Isle of Wight all the way over to Normandy and were pumping fuel from England over there. How long would that take? I don't know. It's a three inch. I mean, you're, that's got to be just high pressured. Yeah. But high pressured for back in the forties. I mean, what could that look like? Was that, I don't know. Uh, to get that diesel first, engine? to get that first fuel to yeah. come through hours. Like, you think it's just like, they have a bunch of dudes over there that are just sucking, <laughs> sucking, sucking a hose. Like you're trying to siphon out of gas. Like, <laughs> how long, am, how long am I going to have to do this? As long as it fucking takes. Can you taste anything yet? No, then keep going. Do you smell anything yet? I think I, I'm getting a whiff of something. <laughs> Keep sucking. So 11 weeks 
after this, Paris gets liberated. It takes 11 weeks. Like, and I'm not saying that in the scope of like, it took 11, like it only takes 11 weeks for them to be able to push. That's already a hundred and in 11 weeks, they've already moved 150 miles west toward Germany. Fighting pretty much the whole way. Yes. Bigger, smaller skirmishes, but they're running across. They're all running these into different... pockets and everything. They're they're bypassing some stuff. Like they, um, because of the equipment and everything, wasn't a for sure as far as the use of equipment and fuel and everything. Um, Eisenhower didn't want to make like like single thrusts into enemy territory, mm-hmm. like it deepened enemy territory. He wanted more of a broad front, even though it moved more slowly, just to make sure he could resupply his equipment and troops and everything. So, I mean, they were moving at a little bit slower rate, but they were also bypassing some areas. I think they bypassed um, or just cut off Calais and then just, like, assigned a certain segment to just kind of, like, siege Calais until they could get it or something like that. So they took Calais kind of from behind then? Yeah, but I don't think they, like, made it a priority to where they turned the whole army toward Calais. It was like, we're going to take this. They just I think cut it, was it off just, it was and kind part, of bled yeah, them it was out. kind of part of – because you can only, you know, with supplies, you can only hold out for so long. Yeah. And at this point, again, the the Luftwaffe is basically non-existent or can't do anything. The German Navy was never really a thing. Like, you think German Navy and Kriegsmarine and all that stuff, it was almost all U-boats. That was, like, what their Navy was. What was the other one? An F-boat? A a C-boat? There was another one that was that um, Operation Tiger where they ran across them. They were like J-boats or some shit Oh, like E-boats. That. E-boats, yeah, they yeah, were, yeah, They were torpedo boats. Oh, okay. uh, Do you remember the show McKill's Navy? Uh-huh. It was like that, where the two uh, torpedo launchers on the side, so they could be fast and be agile, huh. but they could still try to, like, launch torpedoes and sink larger ships. Okay. There was one ship that got sank during uh, Overlord, during the invasion, during Neptune. Yeah, And was, E-boat snuck in. It was like a Dutch destroyer or something like that. But was it... It wasn't over on Omaha or Utah. I feel like it was a British one, wasn't it? No, it was like Dutch. I, I know it wasn't uh, British or American. Oh, and I forgot to mention this, like just talking about like single crazy things that happened during the day. So it was on one of the British beaches and they could see that the um, they were getting bogged down. So the commander that was out there with the Navy told the two destroyers that was with him, get in as close as you can and put fire on the fortifications. These things that got within about a thousand yards which sounds, or, a, yeah, a thousand yards, which sounds like a lot, but, I mean, for a boat, pretty close. It was to the point where they're in danger of grounding themselves by dragging their bottoms. Oh, okay. And basically, this one of them turned sideways. They thought, the guys on the beach thought it was coming directly at them, like it had been hit, and it was trying to beach itself. They said it turned and just went straight down the line of the beach, about a thousand yards out, just firing shots at German <sighs> fortifications. And then when it got to the end of the beach, they said the boat stopped, they threw it in reverse and started reversing back and firing against the fortifications as well. Shit. There was a situation where, um, I don't know if it was a destroyer or if it was a cruiser or a battleship, but on one of the beaches, they were having trouble siding up on targets because of the distance. They spotted a disabled tank, but the tank, its gun was still operational. It was firing shots at these fortifications the guys on the boat were able to see the lob of the shot and where it was landing and use that as a, um, like a spotter, measurement to... as a measurement and as a spotter. And we're using this wow. tank to help them aim and hit these fortifications. So, I mean, just, just kind of like crazy stories from throughout that, that day itself, but kind of getting back to, to after 
and kind of toward the end of, of Operation Overlord. So yeah, Paris gets um, liberated as part of that. And then I think they said that Operation Overlord ends up ending in... I'm trying to figure out which month it was that they said it was over and then kind of give you the the final numbers as far as what ended up happening. Um, it went to the uh, 3rd of August. So two months, three weeks, and three days is what the operation... Did you ever, do you ever see pictures in like the Normandy pictures and you see the, the, they look like weather balloons. They're sitting up on all the ships. Do you ever wonder what those are? Uh, was that the radar? No, they were called barrage balloons and ships would carry these and they would like put them up in the air. They were basically these big balloons that were shaped like the cartoon shaped bombs with like the big part and the fins out the back. Uh And they had a bunch of steel cables that were holding them down. They were to deter planes from being able to come down and strafe them and attack them. Because the planes could hit the cables or the balloons and everything, and it would destroy the plane. So they were like some weird type of an- like anti-aircraft deterrence. Huh. But like if you ever look at pictures of like any of the beaches on Normandy when they a few hours after the landings when all the ships are coming in and landing, you see just like a ton of balloons over the shoreline. We went through a lot of different stuff just for protection and all that kind of thing. We just. And- and all of it came out of experience of something happening. So yeah. ships got strafed and hit. And they're like, how can we stop this? Why don't we just put a fucking balloon with a bunch of steel cables up in the air? The, the craftiness and engineering that went into this stuff. And it wasn't even, like you say, it was experiences that they'd had in the past that weren't like too distant past. So they were kind of they were adapting, pivoting having, on the go. Yes, they were having to. It's the same thing with the Hobart Funnies. Yeah. They need something to clear mines off the beach. They threw a flail on there. They needed floating tanks and all that kind of stuff. So essentially by, you know, the end of July, so... A month and a half, almost two months after the invasion, like I said, one point about one point five million troops. Um, within that same kind of area, the Germans had about three hundred eighty thousand troops in France um, in July. And just numbers, man. I I know, man. But here's the thing: is that though those troops weren't the the cream of the crop, we were we were sending in our best and our you know freshest, the guys that hadn't been just. Fighting nonstop. That's what I mean, though. 1.5 million against 300,000 is already a, a massive advantage. But if you're not getting the A team from that, that 300,000, like it's well, it's even it's even more of a offset. Like, yeah. But I mean, they also did have all their artillery pieces. They had, you know, the defensive positions. That's one of the things that took them so long on D Day to try to accomplish the missions and kind of push their beachfront back a few miles. Is they said that they would get through. You know, they would get through a line of defense like the beach and everything, and they would start making their way through the fields or the roads. And like I was telling you, like it's all farmland with all, you know, the square fields with all the trees and the hedgerows. They would just, Germans would just have machine gun nests set up within these hedgerows. And then you would try to flank it and go around to the side, and there would be another nest there just defending the other one's backside. They said they ran into situations where they ran into that scenario five five times in a row where it was like we're gonna go flank it there's another machine gun go so you ran into these situations where you had all these hidden pockets of germans that were just picking off people well you're not radioing in air support to come fire on these hedges either you have to take those things on exactly full force. yep well most of the planes too were fl- probably not available they were flying back to rearm or or do shit like that so, I mean, when all was said and done during the operation, casualties, as far as um, the Allies go, 124, about, yeah, 124,000 casualties, 
20,500 killed for the Americans, 65,000 casualties for the Brits, um, 11,000 of those were, were killed. For... Whose flag is that? It's a British flag with something in the... Aussies? No, is that the Canadians? Who's that? Yeah, oh, it must have been the Canadian Canadian flag. Uh, 18,500... That looks weird, it's got a little British flag in it. Uh, 18,500 casualties, 5,000 killed. And then um, we also had some people that were like Polish that had escaped that were fighting and everything like that, and their casualties were 2,000. Uh, there were a mix of other places yeah, that quite had a been few. taken I mean, over that came to fight. So as far as in Overlord, yeah, U.S., United Kingdom, Canada, France, Poland, Australia, New Zealand, Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Greece, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Norway, and South Africa. That's and, some shit. And, and for the Axis, it was Germany and Italy. So you see where where the good guys are, what side the good guys are on. So a total for that, just that operation alone, man, Overlord, 226,000 casualties, uh, 4,100 aircraft destroyed, and 4,000 tanks destroyed. And it's just like, we'll make more. 4,000, like... It's a lot of what I kind of said at the beginning, where this wasn't... We weren't looking for... Um, the least amount of casualties to be no. spent. We we knew that there it, was It was some... a balance between sacrifice and what's going to try to end yeah. this thing the fastest and what do we think we have the highest success rate despite the casualties. The inherent risk was just there. Yeah. And I mean, kind of like you were saying, civilians and everything, during that operation, between twenty five and 39,000 civilians killed. You're trying to take these cities over and these people are in the cities. Like, it, it's going to get bombed. They're going to be slaughtered. They're going to be used as human shields. Mm-hmm. Like, it's that's unfortunately just going to happen. I'm not saying that those were all the situations because I'm sure we had some fuck-ups and hit the wrong places, mm-hmm. but... Well, here's kind of like... Here, I'll, I'll present a scenario to you. So you're you're the Germans. You're in a French town. And... Do you keep the French populace there by force? Uh, I say, wait, in what situation? Okay, so like, let's say we're, we're dealing with a D-Day situation. You're in, you're in Caen. Germans are holding it. Yeah. We bombed it, or we're going to bomb it. Do you, keep the French, do you keep the French civilians in the city to try to deter bombings and stuff like that? Or do you let them leave? Oh, I think you kill them. You think you, well, I would think you would keep them in there. Yeah, keep them and kill them. Yeah. Because if they escape, they might give out information about where you're at. So I don't think they're letting them escape, but I don't think they would actively just kill French. I mean, they, I understand that. If you get overrun by a bunch of troops and the French see that they have backup, they're going to try to help you. Or they're going to try to help the Allied forces. I, I don't know about that, man. I think a lot of it, I don't think a lot of it was like French, like fighting men. I think those guys were still in like prisoner camps or like sent to like work camps and everything. But even uh, if you have 5,000 more people there, men or, w- men or women really, yeah. and you get the forces coming up, they're going to see that that's the I think you're more concerned point. with getting the fuck out of there than you are with killing the civilian populace and then trying to leave after that. Well, yeah, and that's what it comes down to. Are you you going to try to hold that place or are you going to be running? Here's the other thing too. You kill those people and you get captured. You're now, that's war crime situation. I don't know if that's really what was on the German mind. 
I don't think war crimes were really at the highest. Of- I would think in in the way that war crimes probably weren't on their minds, I think getting the fuck out of there if they saw that they were going to lose would probably be more on their minds. But again, I don't. I'm not going to sit here and say I understand the the German soldier's mind. Well, and you have to to look at the situation because we're in 1944. I don't know if the writing on the wall has quite shown up for everybody that this may be an unwinnable thing for Germany. Germany, uh, even Hitler said that if if the invasion was successful, it's going to have like severe repercussions. I don't think he said it's going to result in defeat, but I'm pretty sure that Rommel even said something about um, if they got past the beaches, then the war was over. He'd even made a mention of that. In fact, kind of like going back before the end of Overlord when when D-Day was occurring. So finally, they fucking wake up Hitler. It was like one o'clock in the afternoon. They finally send someone in to wake him up to tell him what's going on. And of course, he probably has a freak out and fucking takes a bunch of meth. But he ends up, you know, getting together with Rommel and Rostedt and everything to fucking find out what happened. And I want to say, like, Rumstead got fucking canned. And then Rommel had said something kind of against Hitler, like, this isn't going to work, or was kind of, I, I can't remember. Shouldn't have something. slept through this one. Huh? Shouldn't have slept Should, through this one. Yeah. But Rommel ends up dying in a car accident, like, a few really? weeks later or something. Yeah. We didn't even get him? No. That's a bummer. Well, here's the thing, too, is I don't know if Rommel would have technically been from... And I'm not speaking because I don't know a ton, but I want to say Rommel was someone who had suggested at certain points um, surrendering. And so everything. the best Nazi is what you're saying. I'm not saying that. It was October 14th, 44. Yeah, he died. I think he died in a car accident. That's un. Uh, and then unfunny. another guy that got was in charge or something in another position ended up shooting himself. So it was kind of a... A revolving door of leadership at that point, kind of like the union was during that first part of the civil war, just like next man up. I, I would have loved to have seen Hitler's reaction when he woke up that next morning because he went to sleep while they were living in what this like two week window where everything was probably going to mm-hmm. be okay, which I'm sure for him, he probably didn't know a whole lot about that because he was so removed from the fighting. Like my, my whole thing with, with Hitler is that up until this point, with the exception of things not going ideal in Russia, he's never been, like, beat. Tested. Like, yeah, for aside from fucking and the North Africa shit, but aside from that, he still controls such a huge piece of Europe, for the most part, all of it, that I don't think it really occurs to him that, like, he knows an invasion can happen, but I don't know if he has that part of his brain the normal part that says like, Hey, losing is an option. Uh-huh. Like this is a very real scenario that if you don't play this way, I don't think he ever like understood that losing was a possibility for him and a, and a high likelihood for him. And so when this stuff happened, I think he was just like, you know, it's somebody else's fault, but now like I got to do some more meth and figure this shit out. Well, yeah, he, that was like you say, he, he had the fighting with Russia where there was some pushback and this was kind of like the first offensive blow, really. Besides, I mean, there were England was bombing parts of Germany and all that kind of stuff. But this was like the first pushback, not the first offense, but like the first really. It's, it's a rational conversation when me and you were having it here that this stuff should have been writing on the wall. But this guy is literally a psychopath. Yeah, no, he's, he, so there's there's no way to wrap our minds around around what could have been you know going through his mind at that point. But I really do think that when you when you boil it down, because after. 
after Normandy and after D-Day and Overlord and the Allies getting a foothold and being in Europe, it the war was over in 45. Once we were able to push back at that point, you know, the Germans didn't have the industrial capacity to go ahead and keep up with really anything. Their Navy was almost non-existent. And the, the big reason, too, why I think that um, Hitler kind of underestimated the invasion is he was a – when he served in World War One. I, I think he was more of like a – he was a land guy, like land warfare and everything. So he thought that that – because he had had so much success for that, that that was the superior – and I don't think he had in his limited cognitive ability, I don't think he had the ability to comprehend like a seaborne invasion being this successful or this big. I think he just underestimated it and didn't take it seriously enough. Did he see a lot of action in World War One? I'm not sure. We'll have to cover that when we eventually do Hitler. Yeah. But I <coughs> I yeah, I can safely say and I think it goes you know, along the lines of a lot of a lot of actual professional historians instead of armchair historians, but you know, this was this moment was the beginning of the end for for Nazi Germany. You could you know set your clock by it and be like, the, from this time, the timer's on. It's a countdown. And as far as the the world goes, you know, a, a turning point in the world that had it not been successful, I think in some other way, we could have you know, we could have won, whether it be just us continually bombing the shit out of Germany until there was nothing left or leveling Berlin or something like that. I'm glad it didn't come to that. But at the same time, like how much longer would that have taken us and how many more lives possibly to do another invasion and then fight them? And so, I mean, if it, it, we know what was coming next, we can, we get, we can extrapolate on how they would have done it, but we know what the ultimate answer. Well, and the other thing too, man, if this would have, you know, like we were saying, from this date till, you know, the end of the war, it's, I wonder, when was VE Day? Well, this would have, had this not, <coughs> excuse me, taken effect, um, we would have dropped an atomic bomb on Germany. Well, here's the thing I was just going to say exactly along those lines. So May 8th is when Victory in Europe Day was. So less than a year after Normandy happens. Let's say Normandy's not successful. Shit goes awry. There's a pack of U-boats waiting and sinks a ton of the invasion fleet, whatever. So we have to go back to the drawing board, figure something else out. Had we given Germany more time, we know that they were researching atomic bombs and nuclear bombs because of the hard water thing from what Einstein, or who did the letter come from? Wasn't I... um, Enrico Thermi or something like that. The, it, there was a letter that I, or maybe it was Einstein that wrote the letter to Roosevelt that told him about oh, the yes. program. Yeah, okay. it was Einstein. Had Germany had that extra time and would have become more desperate and more desperate or more emboldened by the fact that the invasion failed, they could have developed. I mean, I know this is going out there and being like, oh, alternative future, like what could have happened? But if they were researching it, there could have been a point where if they would have gotten it before we did or you know even even after we got it but and we bombed them a couple times with a couple atomic bombs but then they end up developing one and send it into the i mean i'm just saying like there's so many possibilities of what could have gone horribly wrong had this Mm -hmm. invasion not worked well and had they had france still it wouldn't have been a whole lot to lob a nuclear weapon over into england exactly they already had the v2s yeah they just attached that thing to one of the v2s or they could have continued to terror bomb london with more v2s there (coughs) excuse me could have been so much more of a chance but 
after we used and saw what the atomic bomb did to Japan, there was no way that that wasn't going to be on the table if we didn't get in there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it would definitely. have been round the clock bombing. Mean, we saw the the schedule uh, during Oppenheimer for what they had planned out at the first two didn't put Japan in there submission. Like three or four or five others. I mean, there was like eight others yes. that were coming that direction. Yeah. So but, we would have switched directions quick. Yeah, this is this is probably the the moment in history that I've researched the most out of anything just over the years, just because there's so many different ways to look at this from the individual stories about the guys storming the beaches, the paratroopers, the guys on the boats, you know, bombarding it, the guys that were doing all of the the lead up work and researching and creating the plans, the spies that were swimming on the beaches and fucking studying sand and all that kind of stuff, just all of that to come together. And and this for this to work was was incredible. Yeah, I, and this I mean it's not. I think it's further away now than it ever has been of World War Two survivors to mm-hmm. kind of hear this story still. And I'm sure you know being this far removed, the memories. Well, I mean, depending on what you saw, they're probably still pretty clear. That's I, and this this isn't to get like sentimental or anything like that, but I had this thought that we're we're very close here within the next few years to not having any World War II survivors. Or, or, yeah, Holocaust survivors. Or Holocaust survivors, people that can tether these events to reality because once those people are gone, that's when stuff starts to feel more like fiction than fact. And events that we lose when there's not somebody that can directly tie us to that or tell us, hey, that really happened, that's when we kind of lose sight of stuff and the importance of it. And I think that's why I I like, you know, this topic and topics like it so much. It's because it's, of course, there was, you know, incentives for us to, to go to war and defeat Germany and everything like that. But this is the, really the last time I feel like humanity was like good and evil and there wasn't a ton of gray. It, it was when, you know, people stepped up, ordinary men, you know, from, from all over that were a different breed of people. That's why they call them the greatest generation, man. The people that took part in this, it's, it's because is, is, is true. I mean, dude, this was their, like, this was their life struggle. We don't have anything. We don't have anything even comparable to it. And these people are still around. And here's, here's what I would ask of the people that, that listen to this. Try to, try to find somebody that was alive at this point. You don't have to go to them and ask them to tell you stories or anything like that. But maybe just thank them and be appreciative that they're still around. And if you get to know them, maybe they will share some wisdom with you. But, you know, we we need to, to cherish the people that actually did this kind of stuff, that changed the world for the better, that, that really did actually, you know, save us. Yeah, I, I fumbled the bag personally on this very badly because I hit the grandpa jackpot because grandpa on mom's side was at Pearl Harbor. Uh, grandpa on dad's side was over... Um, I don't know if he was a part of Operation Overlord, but he was over in France and took shrapnel. And that's literally the only part that I know. And the only reason that I know is because my dad and I went to the VA with him one time. Mm-hmm. I was like, so what part of the war did Grandpa fight in? My dad's like, he was over in Normandy. And at that point in my life, I was just like, oh, that's crazy. What happened to him? He's like, he took shrapnel from a mine. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I remember asking my grandpa about it one more time, and there was like two seconds of conversation, and then that was it. It's like, 
that should be something that I should have talked to both of them more about mm-hmm. had I known the significance of what it was to be able to pass that down to at least another generation. Because, yeah. I mean, there's stories behind both of them that deserve to still be told. And it's like family history. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it wasn't passed down enough. And I don't know it's because they didn't like talking about it that maybe that's what happened. How, how could you? Yeah. Like, you, you, you definitely lost friends. Everything you saw things that would scar you for your entire life and that you would hear loud noises, you know, PTSD and everything like that. It's just you wouldn't want to talk about it. You're you're lauded deservedly so as, you know, a heroic generation and you should receive all of those accolades. But I don't you know, no one should have the expectation for someone to want to relive that. So but yeah, uh, an amazing topic celebrating again, guys, we're a day away from the 79th anniversary of it. Um, do something nice, drop by the VA if you have time to do it, but yeah, take a, take some time and look into this topic and be thankful that these people stepped up when we needed them to. Yeah. Hope that that never happened again. Exactly. All right, guys. Thanks for joining this on our two part celebration of operation overlord and D day. Uh, we'll be back at you next week with something different later. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, Please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, Our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod. And we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically H.I. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.